moms and dads are responsible for leaving a legacy for your young people. Young adults, you are responsible for preparing yourself for leaving a legacy for your children. You are responsible for preparing yourself for the legacy that you will leave as an adult. Because when all the dust settles, when everybody has shed their last tear at your funeral and everybody goes to their, their homes and everything gets back to somewhat normality, what the only thing that's going to matter is what you did for Christ. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. As we read our text once again, Ephesians chapter number 1. And we're going to be, we begin reading at verse number 15, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 15. This is the word of God. Paul says, wherefore I also, after I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what, are the, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave, to, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, We ask you now, Lord, that you would teach us your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The writer, Roy Atwood, writes this. The days of my father's life were by reason and strength and the grace of God, 80 years. He died a year ago today. We still grieve his death, of course. But as the pain of his passing fades, we are struggling with the new pain. The realization of how swiftly the memory of someone so close as a husband, a father, and a friend can fly away. As way dims the contour of his face and the sound of his voice. If if that is gone after only a year, he says, what will we remember 10 or 20 years in the distance? What will his children's children know of him? 
his life, his hopes and fears, his failures, his successes? How will they, what will they know of his view of God? What will be the legacy of his life? Over time, we will forget. We will forget those things that he enjoyed. He loved tools. He loved his sailboat. But over time, we will forget the ways from the sailboat that reflected his image. And his precious guns and tools will be recycled into somebody's gas grill or bent-up wheelbarrow. We will forget the works of his hands. We will forget his strengths. We will forget his weaknesses. We will even forget when the, del- when the delusion of his self-sufficiency was shattered when he fell off the roof while cleaning his gutters. He landed on the corner of the concrete sidewalk and broke his spine between his shoulder blades. The fall almost killed him. But in a split second, his pride, his dreams of everything, everything that he loved was completely gone. He never walked again. He never worked again. He never sailed again. He struggled with depression. He talked of suicide many times. He never wanted to be a burden to his wife or to his family. But his self-sufficiency was gone in an instant forever. End quote. We don't like those words. And I'm sure that it was painful for Roy Atwood to write them about his father. But those words are true. Because here's the reality, church. All that we do, all that we build, all that we ever seek to accomplish, all that we had ever hoped for will not last. The time will come when everything that we ever did will fade away. Time, wind, and erosion will just take everything away. So the question that begs to be answered is, why bother? Why bother to live for the Lord? Why bother to give ourselves, our families, and our children to the Lord? Why bother to do all of this if it, if it just fades away? If everything that we've ever built upon just fades away, why bother? The answer is, church, because that's not the whole truth. There are some things, folks, that will never pass away. The psalmist identifies for us some key areas in life that will never pass away. And I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 112, verse 3. The psalmist said, Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth what? Forever. Church, listen, there is something that will endure forever, and it is the righteousness of those that follow after God. Everything you have ever done, everything you have ever hoped to do, everything that you've ever accomplished 
in this life will fade away, but what you do for God in righteousness will never fade away. Church, listen, there is one thing that will absolutely endure forever, and that is the legacy of righteousness that you leave behind. Everything else will be forgotten. I dare say that there's probably not a person in this worship center this morning that can, without looking online, tell me what I preached on a year ago today. What I preached on a month ago today. Because those things are forgotten. But the righteousness that we do will be remembered forever. Ultimately, we don't want to be remembered for the accomplishments that we did on this earth. Because a lot of times the accomplishments, the things that we accomplish here are just a matter of being at the right time, the right place, and by the grace of God. I don't want to stand, church, before God and be remembered what I did on this earth. I want to stand before God and be remembered for what I did for Him. I want to stand before God and be remembered for the legacy that I left with him. This past week, as we were ending school, hallelujah, right? This week, as we were ending school, I was doing a little cleanup. And if you've seen my office, you know that cleanup is in order. I was doing a little cleanup. And I was going through a stack of things, and I came across my diplomas, my doctorate, my bachelor, my master's. came across all those things, my ordination certificate. And guess what I found? The ink completely gone. If I didn't know that I was there, I wouldn't have believed I graduated. But what does that tell you? Things that we accomplish here on earth are going to pass away. Only what you do for God will last. Only the legacy as a mom, as a dad, as a young adult, as a child, only the legacy of righteousness, church, matters. We gave away some certificates on Friday of young people that excelled academically, and I'm proud of them for excelling academically. But when they stand before the Lord, God is not going to ask them how many A's or B's they got in high school. He's going to ask them, what did you do for righteousness? Because church, that's what matters. Our position in Christ, we need to know our position, and that our position in Christ is that we are responsible for leaving a legacy. Moms and dads are responsible for leaving a legacy for your young people. Young adults, you are responsible for preparing yourself for leaving a legacy for your children. You are responsible for preparing yourself for the legacy that you will leave as an adult. Because when all the dust settles, when everybody has shed their last tear at your funeral and everybody goes to their, their homes and everything gets back to somewhat normality, what the only thing that's going to matter is what you did for Christ. 
What was your legacy? What was your legacy? I asked my grandpa one time, one time after he got saved, I said, Grandpa, I said, what do you want put on your tombstone? He was dying with cancer, lung cancer. I said, Grandpa, what do you want to put on your tombstone? And my grandpa was a kidder, Tori. And I said, Grandpa, what do you want to put on your tombstone? Can you guess what he told me? This is my mom's dad. What he wanted to put on his tombstone was, I told you I was sick. <laughs> I'm sure he picked that up from Andy Griffith or Hee Hall or something out there like that. But he said, no, I'm kidding, Michael. He said, what I want to put on my tombstone is that he lived for Christ. He lived for Christ. And that was a man that got saved when he was 81. Are you a living legacy? The only way you and I will be a dying legacy is if we are a living legacy. I encourage the young people. Doesn't matter what anybody else does. Right? You'd be a living legacy. We began looking last week at Paul's prayer. And part of being a legacy, part of our position in Christ, is that not only we acknowledge and we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, because that's where our position, that's where our legacy starts. If you and I have not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and He is in fact your, your Master, and we submit to Him, if we have not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life, we'll never leave a, we'll never leave a legacy, because we're not being a living legacy. And so we'll never be a dying one. That is where our position starts. But folks, listen. But we need to take it a step farther. Look what he says in verse 15. Your position, church, in Christ, that you need to know that as we go through this text, it's all going to come together for you and make more sense. You as a living legacy, where it all begins is that you trusted in in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it only starts there. Look what else Paul says in verse 15. And love unto all the saints. Now, we live in a world today that's full of love, don't we? Every place you go, I love you. So we're filled with a society of love, but we're filled with a society with the wrong kind of love. Paul says, What is your position? What is your legacy? Your legacy starts as you submit to the Lordship of Christ, and your legacy continues as you have love for all the saints. Listen, church, true Christian love is indiscriminate. It does not pick and choose which believers it's going to love. Christ loves all believers. They are precious to Him. Therefore, as believers, we are to love like Christ. Christ extends the same kind of love to all believers. Now, God, Christ does not love all people the same, but Christ loves all believers the same. And so you and I need to love like Christ. That's part of our position. That's part of our legacy. You've probably heard this phrase that said this, quote, I love them in the Lord. You ever ever heard that? I love them in the Lord. Well, I, I love them in the Lord, which means this. 
Here's the interpretation of, well, I love them in the Lord. I cannot personally stand them. But I know that I'm required to love them. It's sort of like when you're in the South, right? When you're in the South and you want to talk about somebody and you want to talk about them like a dog. I mean, you just want to unleash on them. Everything is better. Everything is not sinful as long as you preface your cuts with, well, bless her heart. As long as you say, well, bless her heart, that covers a multitude of sin, and you can say just whatever you want to say. Folks, listen, we need to love each other indiscriminately. Some of us are hard to love, aren't we? I know you don't believe this, and I know you find this absolutely far-reaching, but sometimes I'm, not, I'm very difficult to love. I know. Go ahead and laugh. Go ahead and laugh with Brother Ben. I know. Y'all, y'all think I'm joking. But sometimes I'm sort of, I, can be, I can be sort of difficult to love. But we need to love indiscriminately. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2? Fulfill ye my joy. Be like-minded, having the same what? What does that mean? That means love everybody equally. Love every believer equally. We are to love church each other the same way. But we must desperately understand this. We must desperately understand this great truth. That it is one thing to say to somebody, I love you. But listen, we need to understand this desperately. That true love is not telling people what they want to hear. True love is not telling people what they want to hear. True biblical love does not, pe- does not tell people what they want to hear. True biblical love tells people what they need to hear. Notice what Solomon said in, Psalm, in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5. Open rebuke is better than what? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy... That's the person that tickles your ear, that just tells you what what they think that you want to hear, are deceitful. Church, listen, biblical love does not avoid saying what is right for fear of not being able to maintain a friendship. Listen, if somebody will not tell you the truth because I'm afraid you'll get mad at me and you won't want to be my friend anymore, listen, they do not really love you. Somebody that loves you will stand up to you and say, you are wrong and this is why you're wrong. True biblical love will not sit by and watch somebody that they call friend just live in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. That's not a friend. And that's not loving the saints that Paul calls in the church in Ephesians 1 to do. That's part of our position. When Solomon says that the wounds of a friend are faithful, he is saying that a true friend may wound your spirit by telling you the truth. But in reality, the one who will not tell you the truth is really your what? It's really your enemy. I'll tell you the only illustration I got, okay? So far, and I'm still trying to unload this one. He's available. So far, I've gone through four marriage counselings. Family marriage counselings. And you can ask all four of my precious daughter-in-laws 
I just love having girls in the family. They just ask something the boys just don't do. But you can ask all four of my precious daughter-in-laws if there was more than one night that they left marriage counseling crying or mad. Sarah doesn't cry much. She left mad. Why? Was I trying to be hateful? Was I trying to be an enemy? Was I trying to make an enemy? I was trying to be a loving friend and a future father-in-law by saying, I love you enough to tell you the truth. That's what a friend is, church. When the prophet Nathan came to David, was he being a friend? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan came to David the king. David had already committed adultery and murder, and David came to, Nathan came to David and told him a parable in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent David unto Nathan, uh, Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in the city, one rich, one poor. The rich man was exceeding, had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little baby lamb which he had brought and brought and nourished up and grew it up together with him and with his children. And it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. This lamb was a member of the family. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was to come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come to him. Now, you get the idea, right? David's reaction to this parable was exactly and precisely the reaction that you would expect. Look what David said in verse 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that had done this thing shall surely what? And what else shall he do? He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan's response to David proved that he was David's friend in verse 7 when Nathan said, King, you are that man. Nathan, at the possible threat of his life, loved David enough and loved the nation enough to confront David of the wrong that had taken place. And then David's reaction in verse 13 was off with his head, right? Now David said, verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned. You know, folks, it's a very good chance that God may use your coming face to face with that individual. God may certainly use that to bring that person to repentance. That person may live in that sin unless they are confronted by you. So be a friend. Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, I've heard of your love for the saints. And listen, church, love for the saints is not just going around telling everybody you love them. Anybody can do that. The world does that. But the true, the true friend says, we need to fix, this is, this is wrong. Nathan showed himself to be a true friend, didn't he? Not only a true friend, but also a lover of righteousness because that is the root of true love, isn't it? The root of true love is to be a lover of righteousness. I don't want to see you violate God's law. I love you enough to, to, to snatch you out from violating God's law. I don't care if you get mad with me or not. I love you enough to tell you that you're violating God's law. 
Because that's the root of all true love is righteousness. I love you and I want you to be righteous. You're never showing yourself, church, to be truly loving and a true friend to the saints by allowing them to struggle in their sinful patterns. And not only are you not showing yourself to be a truly loving, but you're also a violation of the commandment of scriptures. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, notice what the Apostle Paul said. Brethren, brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual do what? Restore him or restore her. And here, so much of the time, I'm afraid, church, is the breakdown in, the, in loving rebuke. Because not all rebuke is the same. There is rebuke that is of the flesh, meaning that, you, that you're doing what you're doing because you're doing it in a, in a manner that is angry. But then there's a loving rebuke that Paul is referring to here in Galatians. And Paul uses the word spiritual here to describe the subject of the verb, which is to restore. You is a subject of the verb restore, and spiritual further describes the word you. You that are spiritual. And the breakdown that we have in this process in evangelicalism is you have a whole lot of people that are spiritually standing in judgment of other people who are themselves not spiritual. The word spiritual has to do with with walking so as to please God. One who has received God's spirit and walks according to that relationship. But the first breakdown in this loving rebuke that takes place with which Paul says in our text, love the saints, is that a lot of people in the church are not living spiritual. But there's another process that's breaking down. What does Paul say in Galatians 6.1? Ye which are spiritual do what? Do what? You know, the, the restoring process is just as much of an order, just as much a command as the rebuking, isn't it? Ye which are spiritual, you who are living according to the spirit that's living inside you, restore. Restore. And here's where spiritual maturity really comes into place. Because listen, church, listen to me clearly. Biblical love is not just saying you're wrong. Not just saying you're wrong. You want to kill a person's spirit? Then you just tell them that you just tell them that they're, they're wrong all the time and not help them any other way. Restore there in Galatians 6.1 is the Greek word katartizo, and it means to mend. It means to repair. It means to equip. The command is this, brothers. If you see any person caught in sin, you that are living according to the spirit that's living inside you, you mend that person. You repair that person. You equip that person. You know what's missing in restoration in the church? Is mending. Is mending. Not just telling someone they're wrong. Not just telling someone that they're sin, that they've sinned. But taking that person in your arms and telling them that you love them. It's going to be okay. We can fix this. Because church, failure with God is never final for the child of God. And loving rebuke not only tells somebody 
And this is our position in Christ, folks. This is where we need to stand, not only in the lordship of Christ, but loving each other to where we tell each other that we're wrong, but not only that we're wrong, but this is how we need to fix it. God still loves you. I still love you. And this is how we move on. You're not downplaying what they did. But you're also not breaking the back of the Spirit because that does no good either. You take that precious one in your arms and you say, this is going to be okay. Let's fix it. We can be so quick to judge, but not so quick to mend. And how many people have wandered throughout the years, how many people have wandered away from serving God because Christians were so quick to judge and so slow to mend the hurt? Both things are required, aren't they, church? And it is all to be done in a spirit of what? Paul says there in that verse. Gentleness. Gentleness. Because remember, you're not above committing that sin yourself. There is no sin that ever exists that's not in the heart of every person sitting in this worship center this morning. And you could, you could commit that sin as well. I'll tell you a little personal story. I hate personal stories. I'd much rather tell them about you. But I'll tell you a little, little personal story. Younger in my ministry, I was, and it, some of you had, did not have, well, I'll put it to you this way. Some of you had the blessed privilege of not knowing me younger in my ministry. Um, and there will be, for Jaina and Mrs. Agner and Nathan and Raynell and, the ho- and Carolyn and a host of other people, a spe- and Betty, a special reward in heaven for those people that endure the early years of my ministry. Uh, and I'm not proud of the attitudes I had. I'm not proud of the things that I've said. In fact, I've gone to, I was, I, had, I was coming down the road from seeing Ray one day, and the Holy Spirit told me, you better turn this vehicle around. You've got somebody to go apologize to. I said, who? Turned the vehicle around, came on back down the road, walked back in the house, didn't even knock. Walked on in the house like I owned a place. Daddy's sitting there. Walked on in the kitchen. And I looked at this young lady and I said, I'm not going to say tell you who she is. I looked at this young lady and I said, right now, I said, I said something to you about 20 years ago. And I said, I am sorry. I was mean. I was ungracious. I was unloving. I was proud. I'm thinking to myself, you can stop me anytime now. (laughs) And she said, Pastor, she says, I have forgiven you already. And we embraced and love each other today, don't we? And it's not a thing we wouldn't do for each other. So we just go around doing nothing for each other. 
But I was in the hospital. This was, this was back in that. So you get an idea of that, of that time frame in my ministry. I was in the hospital visiting a man that I had done much counseling over the, over the number of years. He had a drinking problem, claimed to be a Christian. And, well, he may have been. I don't, I don't know his heart. But he, um, he was in the hospital with what I have later learned to probably be cirrhosis of the liver. And I, and I went to the hospital to see him. And I walked in the hospital room, and he was sitting on the edge of his bed, hooked up to all kinds of wires, and just sitting there, his feet dangling over, just kind of slouched. And, and I will protect this man's name. I called him by name, and he lifted up his head, and I said, What are you doing? I just berated this man for he for doing to his body what he knew better than to do and what he had been warned about doing. I said, "How dare you do this to the temple of God? How dare you drink yourself to death? How dare you do this?" You have been warned time and time and time again by me. How dare you do this? I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. And he just sat there and said, yeah, you're right. Well, I got home from that visit, and I got alone with God. And God broke my heart over what I said to him. Not only what I said, but how I said it. And I was about 30. Old enough to know better, but wet behind the ears as far as the ministry is concerned. But old enough to know better. And God just broke my heart, man. I mean, he just, Brother Ben, he just broke me that night. And I remember sitting in my chair at home with my, with my hands, with my face in my hands, just sobbing over what I did, over what I'd done to that man. I tried to get him on the phone that night, and his phone wouldn't ring, and his phone kept ringing busy. And I said, well, I'm going to get in the car tomorrow, and I'm going to go see him, and I'm going to make this thing right. About 8 a.m. the next morning, I got a call from my father that told me that he had passed away. And I promised myself that day. I promised God that day. I said, God, if by your grace, I will never do that again to somebody. By your grace, Father, I will never be that hard on somebody again. And God, if you'll help me, I want to love these people like you love them. Doesn't mean we don't frustrate each other because we're human and we do. But God, I want to I want to love these people. And I'm not telling you, I'm not standing before you today telling you that I've been that my track record is 100 percent since then. But I am trying by the grace of God to love you as God loves you. And listen, 
I know there's some people that are, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a hands-off person. Y'all know me. I, I'm, I'm my father. I'm not, my father's a hugger. And, you know, my mother isn't really, my father is more so of a hugger. And I, I just got that gene, so watch out. If you need a hug, I'm probably going to give you one. If you need to cry, I'm probably going to give you the shoulder to do it on every time. Because I promised God that day, I'm going to love these people the way you love them. And if they need a shoulder to cry on, they're going to have one with me. I got two strong ones. That's about the only thing on my body that works anymore is my shoulders. But I got two strong ones. And I'm, listen, these arms and these shoulders are always ready if you need to sob and you need to cry. Don't be shy. Because I love you. And that's not just cliche with me. I really love you. But I love you enough to tell you you're wrong. Because I want to leave a legacy of righteousness. And I want you to leave a legacy of righteousness. Because, that when, that, because when all the dust is settled, that's all that's going to matter, isn't it, folks? Is our legacy. The word men there that Paul used in Galatians 6 is the same word that's used in Matthew 4.21 for the fishermen mending their nets. I don't mind sitting down with you and taking a needle and a thread and taking the word of God and mending the net of your life. Because number one, I realize through the grace of God that I'm not above anything. The moment I think that I'm above any sin is the moment that I've entered a new realm of foolishness. I'm not above anything. I'm not above any sin. And I would, I would consider it a privilege to help you mend the net of your shattered life. Because I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. That's what, Paul, that's what the Bible calls for, isn't it? Knowing your position in Christ, leaving a legacy of love. Because what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, 1? Listen, I can rattle off all the doctrine in the world, but if I don't love, then I'm just noise. I can spin off to you every bit of big word that I know, and it doesn't matter. What does John say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in what? In deed and truth. Love for the saints is not just what you say. Love for the saints is what you do. You can spin off all the dogma you want, but if you do not have love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, it profits me, I am what? Nothing. Listen, church, I know a lot of theology. I mean, I've gone through college and seminary, been studying the Bible for 30-some years. I know a lot of theology, but listen, it doesn't mean anything 
if I don't love you first. And you can know all the theology you want, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't love people. It's really sad how, how well the Ephesian church started off. And by the time you get to the second chapter of Revelation, what does Jesus Christ say about the church? I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've forgotten how to love. You started out right, and your history is a sad history of starting off right, but you lost love. And if you go to Asia Minor, you go to Turkey today, there is no church in what used to be Ephesus because they left, they lost their love for Christ, they lost their love for people, and Jesus took them out of existence. Listen, Jesus Christ can write Ichabod, which is the glory has departed over a door of a church, not only because of doctrinal compromise, but because they don't love people and they don't love him. If you read the condemnation of the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, they were a doctrinally solid church. Church, listen to me. Cold orthodoxy without love is nothing. There's got to be a balance. When Jesus came to the Pharisees and saw their man-made loyalty to God, but their loyalty to God or their half-baked loyalty to God made them hateful to people. And I'm afraid that in the churches today in America, we got a group of Christians that call themselves Christians that are bitter and resentful toward other Christians, and they have a loveless faith. And a loveless faith like that really makes you bring into, bring into question the genuineness of that faith. Because Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples. How? By loving each other. I will tell you this. If you cannot love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you can love the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith in him, you can't do that without loving people too. John said this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. There, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begot, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. See, they go hand in hand. Loving people and loving God go together. You can't love people. You can't love God and hate people. You can't have faith in Christ, and that faith that you say you have in Christ causes you to have a hatred for other people. The best legacy that's given. The best legacy that's given. And always remembered is when we know our position. When we know and submit to the Lordship of Christ. And when we love one another. Because knowing facts about what God has done for us in verses 3 to 14 mean nothing unless till we understand who we are in Christ. We are servants of Christ. And we are lovers of one another. That is the two first positions that we must understand. Because any other understanding, they're just cold, empty facts. Many of you probably remember Pat O'Brien. Pat O'Brien was a sports, sportscaster with CBS. He and John Madden did the Monday Night Football together for years. Pat O'Brien one time was quoted as saying, I think I have seen the difference between the true Christian and the false Christian. True Christians are those that are really heavy in studying the Bible. He said that to John MacArthur in a private interview. John MacArthur said back to him, he says, well, what you're really seeing is when you see somebody that's really heavy in studying the Bible, what you're seeing is that God is revealing, giving them revelation about what they are in him. 
And that revelation takes all the truths and all the, and all the realities and makes them real to us so that you can truly understand what all these blessings mean. Folks, listen, verses 13 to 14, you're elect, you're predestined, you're, you're forgiven. None of those things mean anything if you're, not a, if you're not first in your position as a slave of Christ and second in your position, you are loving the brethren. Some of you remember the verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Malachi 3.16, not John 3.16. And in that verse, you see a whole host of heaven speaking to one another. And in that scenario, God is listening. At some point, he takes out what's called the scroll of remembrance. Whereupon that scroll are written the names of all those that fear and honor God. Listen, church. When the earth's records of everything that you've done fade away, And there is only one record of those that honor God. And that record doesn't fade away. And how wondrous to know that God not only knows my accomplishments and my failures, but he knows me and he remembers me. Why is that important? Because you can work for a company for 30 years and in three weeks after you're gone, they don't know your name. You can be forgotten by your company. You can be forgotten by your family. You can be forgotten by your country. You can be forgotten by your church. But God says, I remember you. God says, I remember your legacy. Not only that you were my servant, but I remember the legacy that you loved people. When school is in session, I preach about, if you count devotions, I preach about 15 times a week. 15 times a week. That's a lot of running my mouth. But you know me, I'm always up for that challenge. But there's only one thing that's going to be remembered when I get to heaven. And there's only one thing that I want to be remembered when I get to heaven. And it's not that I preached 15 times a week. But it's that I took a, I took a hurt saint. I took a shattered saint. I took a saint whose, whose net of their life was completely broken. And I took them in my arms. And I let them cry it out. It's going to be okay. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be remembered for. I took a young girl in my arms this week. Precious, precious girl. She just sobbed. I said, I love you. This is going to be okay. Let's mend this. And let's move on. You see, folks, that's what God expects us to do for each other. Now, I'm like a blind squirrel. I find a nut every now and then. 
So every now and then I get it right. God help me to get it right more. Because when I walk up to Eugene Glass and I say, Mr. Brother Glass, I love you. That's not cliche to me. When I walk up to Tori in Autumn, Logan, Joni, Mrs. Agner. Yeah, Mrs. Agner too. Of course, Mrs. Agner. Anybody. When I say I love you, it's not cliche. I want to help you mend your life if it's broken. I don't have all the answers. But I know the God who does. And you and I both possess the Word of God, the Scriptures that will tell us exactly what we need to do to mend your life. I'm going to end with this. I'm done. I love you. I'll never forget it. I love you. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.